the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And this is, yes, the first episode for 2019. And what better way to get started than to clean out the closet from 2018? I have got three interviews for you that were done in November and early December. And for whatever reason, I wasn't able to get them on air by the end of 2018. But they are still great interviews, still a fun listen. We have got first up, formally of Enough's Enough, uh, Donnie V talking about his new album, Beautiful Things. And if you haven't heard it, I certainly suggest you do hear it. Uh, after that, Controlled Chaos is a new album by Nita Strauss, and I had a chance to talk to her. And last but not least, Fred Purser and John Deverill, formerly of Tigers of Pantang, have a new album out called Square One. Now, during the interviews, you will hear them say, my new album is coming out next week, or my new album is coming out in a couple of weeks. Yes, that is true. I am not going to edit that stuff out and pretend that these interviews were fresh from yesterday. They are, like I said, uh, about four weeks old in in pretty much all the same in all the cases. But um, listen, uh, here they are, and on the phone to discuss all of this is the one, the only Sir Alan Niven. Good day, bonjour, Monsieur. Bonjour. Uh, comment ça va? Ça va très bien. It, it is very good. Now, uh, it is our tradition to do fresh, baked, right out of the oven interviews. But, you know, listen, we've had Paul Stanley. We've had Slash. We've had Alice Cooper. We've had uh, Ace Fraley. We've... Peter Frampton, uh, just just stuff just piled up. And uh, listen, it is a good, or should, in fact, should I say a great uh, problem to have, right? Uh, yes. Well, you say we have fresh-baked interviews. I'm very glad to uh, hear that we don't have half-baked interviews. So, uh, well, and sometimes... As long as, as, long, as long as they're fully baked, I'm in. And, and listen, I, I think sometimes some of the interviewees are fully baked. <laughs> you know. Uh, I, I have absolutely no doubt, and I think we might even have a candidate today, but uh, we'll leave, leave that up to the imagination of the listening. Uh, yes, the audience. And so, yes. uh, the, the one and only Donnie V, enough's enough. Here, here's an interesting band. Uh, Howard Stern has gone on his radio show years, uh, year after year saying, this is my favorite band, or it's one of my favorite bands. Uh, they have been compared to Cheap Trick. They have been compared to all kinds of great bands. And yet, and I say this with the utmost respect, they never seem to get by or past sort of a C-level band or a B-level band. And I know that sounds rude and horrible to say, but but they've never been an arena act. They've never been a theater act. And yet... When you talk to fans who listen to them and you hear My Michelle and you hear this um, – uh, sorry, Fly High Michelle. My Michelle, of course, is, is Guns N' Roses, but Fly High Michelle. It, it's great stuff. Why do you think, Sir Alan – and I'm going to call you Sir Alan today – why do you think they never got to that next level? The, the songwriting seems to have been there. The music seems to have been there. What was le problème? Well – 
utterly candid about this. First of all, I've got to say that um, I'm always a little nervous about a grading system. And if we are going to employ a grading system, the A's are people like Pink Floyd, Jimi Hendrix, and Free. So And Kiss. I'm not even sure that they passed. Anyway, um, as far as a grading system goes, um, when you have to consider the excellence of excellence, um, that means that most bands are going to be lucky to be a B or a C in the first place. And with this band in particular, Enough's Enough, I think part of the problem that they had was timing. Um, in the, to my memory, they started to come up on the radar screen um, on the back end of the, of the late 80s wave, by which time um, the hairy armpits of Nirvana were starting to have their impact. And uh, I, I, it's no secret that I find most of the Seattle stuff um, joyless and miserable and that's because it is probably um and having been to seattle a lot of times i can comprehend fully um there was once once a night where i actually persuaded a, a young cab driver to let me take over driving his cab i gave him a big fat tip you can imagine but he told me that he'd been taking people to parties all night and, and sitting in the back i went well that sounds entertaining and I looked. I said to him, can you remember where you went? And he said, sure, I can remember where I went. And I said, will you let me drive? And I waved a considerable amount of money at him. And he said, sure, I'll let you drive. So me and the cab driver went to all the places where he'd been delivering people to parties. And I got to say, I went in, and they were the most miserable parties I'd ever seen in my life. There was no light. There was no energy from the music. People looked miserable. It was as if living in Seattle obliged you now of that disposition and uh, when I got on the plane the next day and flew home I went well now I understand the music the music scene up here a little bit better but um, enough enough I think came back on the back end of the wave and I think that counted against them and that was hard to overcome I mean I, I, if you look through rock and roll history you'll find lots of bands that you go now why didn't they do a little bit better um, and sometimes the only answer is unlucky timing. Yeah, I agree. And one of my favorite bands, Foreigner, uh, the lead singer currently, Kelly Hansen, was in a band called Hurricane. Absolutely spectacular music. The, the, the albums are fantastic. Yet right there with the timing, they had they released it in 84, they would have been as big as whoever. And because they released it at the end of the 80s, they just became a footnote. And but musically, just great stuff. Anyway, uh, enough well, is enough. Hold on, yes. Hold on, hold on. There is obviously one other aspect that is absolutely critical and crucial. Gene Simmons' approval. It, no, it means uh, if you don't have a great manager, then you're screwed as well. Yes, 
And I'm well. Well, of I, course, I'd have that viewpoint. <laughs> right, completely un, unbiased. But uh, we have waited long enough for these interviews, so let's get over to Donny V. He is talking about beautiful things, which is not the Seattle grunge scene. And uh, just quickly, since we always get a hockey reference in here, we all know that Seattle has been awarded an NHL franchise, and I am boldly going to predict that they are going to be called the Metropolitans, and they will be great competition for the Vancouver Canucks. See? Well, I look forward to uh, another team to uh, have to come down and and deal with uh, Las Vegas and uh, Phoenix in the desert. Yes. Um, so, yes. whether well, they're Mets or, Mets or Nets or Jets... Who knows? Who knows? Anyway, here he goes. Without further ado, the one, the only, Donny V. We are speaking with Donny V, uh, of course, formerly of Enough's Enough. The new solo album is called Beautiful Things. And Donny, uh, I was telling you this before we got started. I have heard the whole thing. It is a spectacular album. It is well constructed. And help me with the definition. I call it melodic rock. Maybe, I don't want to say pop, but it's it's got some great harmonies, great vocals. Um, you know, just well done. Well, thank you. Um, I, I don't know what you could call it. You know, what do you call, you know, Tom Petty and Heartbreakers? What's that, you know, style? Or, you know, just, uh, it just, just is rock, what it is, you know? Right? Just, Good old yeah, rock. It's just rock and you know, it's rock is melodies and harmonies and hooks and and flavors and sounds and and all put together in uh little, little stories and, and, and it came out sounding pretty good. I thought I really liked it this time. Yes, yeah, so, <laughs> well so, always. I I am always I always like them, but I was really, really happy with this one. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine you don't put out an album like uh, the White Album or Goodbye, Enough is Enough, <laughs> and just go, oh, this is horrible. I'm just going to throw this. No, no obviously well, it's good stuff, right? Well, those kind of uh, Goodbye, Enough is Enough. I don't think I had the best uh, the best intentions or vibe at the time of that. I don't think that was that was like the end of a the end of one one period of my life that that, that needed to finally kind of come to an end and I needed to rejuvenate and, and start over. And this is, you know, so I, I, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of pretty music I've made in my life and with the band and without the band that weren't, weren't in the prettiest of times, you know what I mean? Or the prettiest frame of mind. So this one kind of was, this was, well, this one absolutely was, you know? So that's, that's the difference. And I, I hear it big time in there. So, so let's, let's just work our way through the album and then we'll talk a little bit about the past too. But Songwriting wise, are these songs that have been sitting around somewhere for in some form for five, ten, fifteen years, and you said, "Okay, let me dust them off," or are these songs that sort of look at where you've been in the last three, four years and say, "Okay, I mean, where where is the inspiration and the songwriting from this album come from?" This is uh, these are by no means none of them are. Well, there's one that was a that was a an old idea from back uh, shit. I don't remember when it was. It was when I used to, I wasn't in the band for a while in the early 2000s. And, and uh, I used to record a shitload of little demo ideas really poorly. But there was one that somebody had sent to me, a fan sent to me, like a bunch of songs. And I heard this one in there. It was one I always really liked. So there is one from that back then. But uh, all the rest of it's all brand new. Um, kind of, uh, the, the White Album and before that was kind of going through the basement. You know what I mean? That was, 
I cleared it all out. This is all brand new. And I just started writing these uh, probably a year and a half, two years ago. And the first song that you heard, I think I could say, well, that was the first song I wrote in like three and a half, four years. And, um, and I thought, you know, well, this isn't bad. This is, it looks like it might be back. You know, I thought, I thought it turned off, but now it seems like it uh, came back good. And then you just started pouring out after that. When you, when you're sitting down and writing these, do, do you think to yourself, okay, as I'm truly, truly a solo artist, I can sort of do whatever I want. Or do you sit down and say, listen, I'm a solo artist, but I have a fan base. They're chip. They're they're not chip fans necessarily. They're enough's enough fans. Uh, do you try to sort of write in that enough's enough kind of vein, or do you have this total freedom to just go? It is what it is. Well, um, it's really no different than than writing for you know the last thirty five years. Um, I've always just written some you know things that sounded really cool to me. You know, uh, that sounded like the things I like. And, um, you know, obviously had I gone, had I decided to do the sell commercial thing, I would probably be a hell of a lot more successful, but, uh, now there's just, uh, I just, what, what comes to mind comes to mind is sometimes, you know, the lyrically and stuff, it's, you just have to figure that all out as you go. It's just, you know, the ideas come just like, uh, I don't know. They come in a form of energy, sort of, and they're they're kind of already, in a way, written. And I just have to decipher it. And that's my job. You know what I mean? And now I think I did a little bit better job this time as I, I fine tuned it a little better, and I'm and I'm real happy with the way that it came out. Yeah, I, I think it sounds great. Now, talk to me about about your career in the band because you you've written some incredible songs and we all know fly high michelle we know new thing we know those ones um but the band always seemed to not get to that next level and and, and you have people in your, in your corner like howard stern that was always talking about you and, and fans always loved it what was sort of holding the band back from being to that getting to that next level and going from a club to an arena act what, what was sort of keeping you guys from that next level? You know, uh, that's a million dollar question. I logically, and if you look at it with common sense and logic without getting in, going into a bunch of details that, that it's, it's a pretty, there's a, there's a lot of obvious reasons, you know, I mean, there's a lot that people don't know that were political and things like that. There was a lot within the band. There was, you know, it's just uh, the time, everything. It just, it was like the, everything was lined up kind of against us. Plus, you know, the behavior, my behavior, you know, some of the other guys behavior, just, uh, you know, if, if I don't know, there's whatever, whatever, uh, guardian angels that we had at the time were, were retarded and guarding us the wrong way, <laughs> guiding us the wrong way with probably every move, but, um, you know, it is what it is. Okay. So, so, but, but let me explore that just a little bit and then we'll, we'll move on. Do you look back at Atco Records and say, oh, it's their guy, the AOR guy, the whatever, they didn't push us? Or do you think, wow, Chip and I were real F-ups and we really screwed up this great, I mean, or did the radio, I mean, is it more of a conspiracy or do you sort of look at yourself in the mirror and say, you know what, we should have played this better? Well, 
we we should have obviously we should have played a bit from the from the very beginning nothing nothing was ever we we built on quicksand we built our foundations on quicksand we started out we took this easy road with this money guy manager who introduced us to a lot to spoil us rotten before we even had a deal and stuff with drugs and money and everything so we were already pretty corrupt from pretty innocent dudes you know at least uh chip and i were and 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 by any means, Chip's enough uh, isn't. You can't really blame him for fucking anything up. He worked his balls off and did as much as he could. You know, if anybody did that, would probably been me out of us. But um, you know, the, the you know the sound of the band. It wasn't. It wasn't a. It wasn't a good, really a good match for longevity. It was great for if you wanted to come out and, and take a bite at the time, you know, and and then just coincidentally. Right at that time, everything, you know, that whole look and image and style of music all just took a big shit right then, you know, as uh, right when we were starting to uh, climb and uh, we just got washed out with everything else. And, and there was a big, big uh, issue with image and all of that stuff. We just couldn't shake it. So it was, we couldn't shake it. And it, it's not accurate. It wasn't Echo's fault. Echo's did a great job for it. They pushed the shit out of us. They had a great team, everything. We were on number one TV, everything. It's just uh, that label uh, took a big shift and, and took a new takeover and everything right there, on, you know, right from underneath our feet. And so we weren't dropped or anything. It's just uh, our style of music wasn't going to get pushed anymore. They were going they were going a different way. And, and you know, and then we went over to, uh, we switched labels and went to, went to the exact wrong label that we, that we possibly could have gone to for our, for what we were trying to do uh, for financial reasons. Cause everybody needed money stuff. And that panned out exactly like everybody predicted that we didn't know. And, and then, you, you know, after a couple two strikes at majors and you're, you're done, you get, it's like uh, softball rules. You get two strikes. <laughs> yeah once uh you're and you're right about that once the label sort of get this or you get this reputation of you're not a money maker for the label it is impossible to get and so the, so the second label obviously is arista and and they didn't do yeah what, right which you know it's real easy to say well hey if, if atlantic and, and arista can't figure out how to do it you know what i mean but but you got it there was a whole lot else involved you know that it you know had you know i mean if if, if day had been night you know, this would have happened or that would happen, you know, but you can't, you know, what can you say? It's, it, it is what it is. And it, and it, uh, you know, it, it is what it is. And sure. And in the very end, you look back and you say, wow, well, see, it all worked out that way for this reason, you know? Um, I'm calling you from, from Montreal, which is in Canada, and I'm looking at your album cover and it's got a couple of cannabis leaves on it. It is now legal up here. What is sort of your take on on what should happen in the states with that? Should, should you follow Canada's lead and make recreational cannabis legal absolutely everywhere, available to all? Here it's eighteen year olds, uh, but in the states with your drinking laws, maybe match it at twenty one. What what is sort of your take on that and moving forward? <laughs> are you ask? Are you seriously asking Daddy V's for the guy from Enough's Enough with his yep. take is on drugs. Yep. On drugs. Yep. Because I asked Chip and I'm asking you. But no, well, because it is it is a big issue up here. I mean, for for, for forever. Well, in fact, for the first time since 1923, it is legal to buy cannabis in Canada. 
Uh, and so I'm just curious as to what you think should happen. Is Canada jumping into this great unknown and it's a big giant mistake or, you know, hey. Oh, my goodness. Have you smoked weed ever? Myself? Absolutely. I actually yeah. haven't, believe it or not. But You have. You have not or you I have? I have not. I have stayed. You have not? Oh, well, then it's, then it's hard. Have you drank? I have drank when I was younger. Okay. Well, well, I would say by far it, it should have, it should be legal before alcohol should be. Alcohol does nothing but, well, I don't know, besides, besides hookup relationships that only last a, few, a year, it does a lot of, a lot of damage. It kills people in accidents. People are get off shitty, a fight. And do, I mean, most of the stupidest shit alcohol and it's terrible for you and it kills your liver and everything it makes you do other things it's yeah weed doesn't do that you know i'm not i'm not mr pushing anything anymore you know i did my share of everything and uh let's just say that i thank god that i no longer have any desire to get all fucked up on hard drugs and be slamming booze you know what i mean <laughs> right but uh, as far as we as far as weed goes i never considered that anything to, to be, I, you know, that's a Flintstone vitamin compared to beer. Right. You know, so, so take it for what it is. You know, I'm, I'm the last guy to whatever say anywhere in, in print or anything of what I think should be legal or what should be laws. I just, I'm not, I don't go there. I don't know anything. You don't know anything. <laughs> All right. So, so nah. let, me ask, let me ask you about Chip. Uh, Chip, Chip is a friend, uh, obviously for, for both of us, he has gone on with the name, the brand, for the lack of a better yeah. word, he put out a new album out this year. Um, yeah. Is that something you're comfortable with, or or do you prefer him to say, "Hey, you know what? Just go be Chips Enough. Why why be the brand? Why not do like me? I'm Donnie V. My new album is, is is beautiful things. Why not go be Chips Enough? You know, Diamond Boy. Well, you know, um, I do feel that way for him. Um, I just. Uh, you know the things the things that I have problems with with that camp have nothing to do with with my uh, love for him or, or how much I care. You know, it's just there's all it's all other stuff that I that I'd rather not discuss. I I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you know, Chips Enough taught me how to rock. You know, he was my brother through all of everything I've ever seen and done in my life, good and bad. Um, he works really hard, and I'm certainly, absolutely for sure, I'm not. Uh, in the frame of mind or in the, of wanting to do, be doing what he's doing right now with that band. So, you know, why shouldn't he, you know, and he was out doing it, but, and then I was like, well, why are you still doing this? You know, I talked to him about it like years ago. He goes, those people want to blah, 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 blah. I go, yeah, but I, you know, and people usually, you know, there's only just you, you know, everybody else is, you know, I say, and uh, I said, well, at least why don't you at least sing the song, <laughs> you know? And then, and then he did. And, uh, so that's, he's always kind of wanted to do that anyway, you know, but it's just him. It's like, you know, why do you still want to do it? But I couldn't understand why he wanted to make a new record that wasn't, that didn't, you know, cause I'm singing on all of the records and was, you know, contributed to all of that. And it was a real pretty good, you know, if we had nothing else, we had a good, a good history of, of great songs with a reputation of that, you know, and, and I'm not saying that his, that his new record sucks or anything. I think it's great. I think it sounds exactly like the stuff that he writes and, and I'm glad that he made it and it's cool. You know, it's just, it, it sounds like to me, like him without me, it, you is, know, 
is that something that you'd like to see change? I mean, I'm speaking from a fan perspective. There is a certain magic when you two are working together and writing together and playing together. We know that. Is that something that you, as you get older, think, yeah, yeah, we've had our disagreements and yeah, yeah I left the band. But do but you think, hey, we had some magic there. Let's Let's try to tap that one more time. Well, if there was, I I still think that 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 I'm making magic magic here with what I'm doing. You know, um, I don't. No, you're I don't right. think I'd be making. I don't think I'd be making this record if I was playing with with him or who and with whoever he was he's with at the time. Um, no, but I mean, you know, if 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 there was ever a a sound sensible reason for me to do something like that, then, then obviously, of course I probably would. But right now, you know, I'm doing this, he's doing that, you know, we see life is life holds all kinds of surprise. You never know. <laughs> yeah. And, and, it, and, and beautiful things is a great record. So let, let's get back to that for, for a bit. Thank you. Um, in terms of bringing this to the fans, do you see yourself heading out on, on an extended tour or any touring at all? What are sort of the plans to bring these songs to people? Uh, well, just right now, just getting, putting, getting the record out there and uh, trying to figure this business out as it is now, playing on the, the level that I'm playing. I think we got a good product. We got some, we're adding good people to the team. And um, it's just get the record out and just, you know, I'm starting with one or one, a couple performances and just take it as we go and do what, do what makes sense. You know what I mean? It doesn't make sense to get in a van or a, uh, a bus or something and go around, you know, back, back towns and stuff. And you get all, you know, play into 20, 15, 20, 50 people, whatever. That doesn't make sense. And that'll just kill me. Just like riding and doing that, uh, 80s cock rock tour would, would kill me. You know, I'd be doing nothing but de- feeling kind of deflated and just start, you know, get back into the old bad ways. But, um, yeah, I just, you know, I got to do things that are logical and sensible and, and treat it as a business now instead of just monkey business. <laughs> right. So, so, so yeah. how, how do you get it out there and, and get a sense of validation? What, what is sort of some, like, how can I put it? Uh, I'm talking, I'm talking to one of them right now. <laughs> well, yeah, and I hope it helps. When, well, when you be, I would hope that you'd be one of them, and maybe, and then you know, and then he tells two friends, and so on. <laughs> well, listen, uh, a lot of folks will be listening to this when it comes out, and, and and I will tell them unequivocally that if you like, you know, good rock, hard rock, melodic rock, whatever, beautiful things is an album you must check out. I've heard the whole thing, and I've said it before. There's not a single cut on there where you go, meh, could have left that one off. They're all a great part of the puzzle. They all they all fit. So, I mean, it really is a, a splendid job you did. You also uh, went with the Pledge Music campaign on this one. Uh, talk right. to me about that direct marketing and using the Pledge Music campaign, because it really is a different model than, you know, here, here at Go, here are the masters, go do a marketing plan. Uh, how hands-on are you in that and... and is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? The pledge, the pledge campaign thing was something that they've been doing for quite a while. And a lot of people have ta- told me about that for, for ages. I just never been together enough to, you know, uh, by myself to, to actually get anything done except create the creative is basically what, you know, I do 
and uh, and of course, fulfilling the obligations of the pledge. You know that there's I got to go. I'm going to dinner with certain people, going to studio with certain people, all kind of crazy stuff. You know, but um, but you know, it's like the people. You know, it, the the labels, the, your your options of labels that you have, at you know, aren't uh, going to give you anything. They're not really. It's you know, I've done that. I've been there and done that. You know, it turned with the pledge thing. It's the same people are already going to buy anything you make. You know, anything I do, I've always had the same. There's loyal, great, wonderful fans that will find it, you know, like a needle in a haystack. So it's like, you know, they, uh, why do you even need these other guys? Cause they've never, they don't really do anything. They, they go out and hire a independent, um, PR guy, which we just went, and did it ourselves and hired the same guy. So we don't need the, you know, all, and they don't, plus they don't give you very much money. We made way more money than, than say like the enough's enough, uh, budget. Right. Right. But, but I mean, I, I was in on the original deal with that day cause Chip had to let me know to, to sign that deal with, uh, with frontier. And cause I uh, started out with that clowns lounge record and those were all our old demos. So he couldn't very well release that without my, you know, so I know what the deal is structured like. And uh, believe me, we got a much better deal. Yeah. Pl- I mean, I, I did a pledge music thing in 2013 and it actually is very, I did it for a charity. We raised $35,000 right. doing it. There really is something very satisfying and, and you've already surpassed the goal of a hundred percent. Um, yeah. it's gotta be satisfying for you to, to know that you've written these songs and before anybody's really heard anything, there's a demand and a hundred, you know, over a hundred percent of, of your budget is, is done. And, um, does that change? Well, those, any? Yeah. No, they're all, all, everyone who pledged and everyone who listens and everyone who loves it and everyone who keep, keeps me doing this is part of what I do. And they're part of the story and they've been there through the years and, and uh, their energy is part of what goes back and forth for me to them is which makes what I do better, you know, and um, why shouldn't they, you know, be a, be a, a more hands-on part. And so, you know, it's, uh, I don't know, it's, 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 hard to, it's hard to explain the, the relationship, but it feels different. I, I, I really was inspired by it. It, 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 it re- renewed my faith in some of these people or this, uh, some of the, that, this, well, the business situation, situation, this life that I'm in again, you know, and, and so into, to, uh, you know, I got right down to the point where I figured, Hey man, let's put you, you know, beautiful things. What are you gonna use for record cover? You know, I would have thought something stupid that probably wasn't beautiful just to be retarded. And, uh, I thought, well, you know what, what's more beautiful than these people, you know, that's the beautiful thing. It's like, let's all be part of this. It's going to be really nice package and artwork and shit it's it's really it's really fitting of the record and it all just is coming together so well it's like everything is happening like uh i don't know it's hard to say it's the closest thing to magic i've ever seen happen is creating you know this record well okay well so, so talk to me a little bit about the fan base because they have been very supportive the band you know, like we said, we, you didn't get to that to the arena level, but you have been around for 30 years and, and you have been uh, revered. Uh, and again, we will mention Howard Stern. He's been in your corner from day one. Um, you know, what, what, what have the fans meant to you both professionally and personally? Oh, professionally, 
the fans obviously have, you know, uh, sustained us through the years. You know, I mean, it, we have whatever level that was, you know, they keep giving us a job to do and a purpose. As far as personally, it's just they, they like I said, they, it's the energy that, that I get from it. And, uh, you know, it, it fuels my energy and it makes, you know, makes me want to do better for, for a better record every time. Makes me want to do a better song next time, you know, and, and I've, I've held myself to that try to hold myself to that standard for for as long as I've been doing this is try to make the next thing cooler and better and evolve for them for me because for, I'm a fan you know I like to listen to it when it's done and and if I if I'm happy with it I think today we'll be probably uh drifted off taking a little bit of cold medicine today <laughs> no you're doing fine but uh in, no. in in terms of uh, of this album coming out and pledge music do you see yourself sort of getting into a, a more regular pattern where you go to pledge music every year and we and we have a new pledge or do you still want to space these albums out of two years three years four years what is sort of the plan moving forward as as we get into you know auto financing going straight to the fans the direct marketing and coming up with an album that is that is spectacular. I mean, is there is there more in the can, or or did you sort of lay it all out on the line and say, "All right, folks, talk to me in five years." Uh, you know, what, what's... my goodness, you're giving me anxiety right now with all right. that you just mentioned. Okay. <laughs> I have terrible anxiety. Uh, like I said, with everything else, uh, I, I play in it up by the seat of my pants right now and trying to just parlay that good decisions and good moves and good songs and and this and that in, into the next one and, and just keep going. So I don't have, there is no plan. The plan is be able to continue doing this till, till a day I die is obviously the plan, you know, but what, you know, you just got to follow the signs and, and do the best you can and, and hope, hope for that there is a, you know, hope nothing happens, hope everything goes well and just do the, make the next logical sound move. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to it. You know, uh, Donnie, just an absolute pleasure. I, I of course, was one of those who bought the first uh, Enough's Enough record, and I've had all the other ones since. And uh, beautiful things, man. It, it's a great addition to the uh, to your discography. It really is. It, it, you. Thank you. You did great work. I mean, it really is a stunningly beautiful album, and uh, good on you. And I, I'm looking forward have, to it. Thank you very much. I have to say, I, I feel like it is the record that I've always wanted to make you know this it's you know there's there's nowhere where i i can i'm walking away saying ah shit you know i didn't do this or that or this and that every single thing down to the cats that that played on it like the guy from jellyfish and paul gilbert and matt walker and all those guys you know this is dudes i always want to work with they were old friends and stuff and, and it's just everybody's what everybody lent to this record was just beautiful the harmonies my buddy phil and Gotti, jay o'rourke and you know uh bass player casey oh my goodness they got everyone who played on this thing really delivered it's, it was just magic i i've never seen anything uh come together so perfectly like you know usually when you're making the old records it's like a puzzle that comes in a box without a picture on it you know what i mean <laughs> but this one just sort of fit together and, and you could see it get it and like great great producer engineer mixer mike Dolan, just the best i've ever worked with and i've worked with a lot yeah and and what the sense i got from it is that there was a, a great comfort level it didn't sound 
that you were like trying to chase a radio single or it didn't sound like you were trying to fit into a box. It just sounds like I have this free canvas to paint whatever I want. And there's, there, I don't even know how to explain it, but there, there's a certain inspiration to it of you can just feel somebody who's unburdened, just making the best art that he can make. And it, and it, and it is, it really is a beautiful thing. Well, thank you. You know, it's a, I really didn't feel any pressure that, that there was any possibility I could create something that, that would be a hit on radio today. <laughs> I don't think that that's a, that's still in the, in the cards, but you never know. But no, I, I really, you know, I've never, never really written for that purpose. It's, uh, you know, it's, everything has changed in music and the sounds and the producers and everything of what people consider a pop pop song now i would consider my shit just this new record just pop music but that's not what they call pop music anymore so i'm grandpa now in my day you well, know in, in our day, day we had really good stuff you know you i don't know what you could do with them and do now. <laughs> yeah we had aor guys well, we don't have aor guys anymore but anyway uh, oh the- it was a beautiful thing it was a beautiful thing man that's what that first song's about the first song's about aor guys <laughs> I could save the world a little bit there. If you look at the message of it, there, there'd be part of that, that whole, uh, energy that, that used to be, that's not anymore. I thought you guys were gone. I thought Westwood won. My goodness. No, still here. There's hope. There's hope. And we, we, and we got to dig through the Westwood One uh, or Super Concert Series rock vaults or whatever and see if there's any enough's enough little stuff lying around that needs to be uh, brought back. To that her. would be great. Just just make sure it's with me singing. Otherwise, I'm not interested. <laughs> uh, obviously. Uh, obviously. Donnie, uh, just a, a great chat. Now, I know you, you're, you're fighting that cold, so, so go rest. But thank you for today. Oh, horrible. Yeah, I know. Oh, I know. It's that time of year, huh? Uh, but thank you for today. Thank you for the, this album. Beautiful things, folks. Uh, pick it up. Uh, head over to Pledge Music. And uh, as we say up here in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. Yeah, unfortunately, I probably won't be getting up to Canada much. <laughs> well, we'd <laughs> for, love to have for, you, but... For a couple personally, I guess I have an allergy to something in the air up there that they tell me to stay away. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you never know. Things could change and make me able to take that. I won't even say. All right. There you go. Thank, thank you, you very much. Thank have you, good... and thank you for including me and calling me. And sorry if I rambled. Everyone told me don't. Nah, you're perfectly fine. It sounds great. Thank you, sir. Thank great you. pleasure. Cheers. Uh, all right, cheers. Bye. Hey, this is Frank Hannon, Tesla's lead guitarist. Be sure to visit my website, frankhannon.com, to check out my latest solo album. And keep on listening to Westwood One's Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Crank it up. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. And a very big thank you to Donnie V. And again, uh, I do extend my apologies for having put this out just a little bit later than the album release. But listen, I hope you enjoyed it. It was a great interview. Donnie was a fabulous, fabulous guest. And speaking of fabulous guests, let us get over to Nita Strauss. I saw Alice Cooper in Syracuse back in October. And as per usual, an absolutely fantastic show. Uh, Tommy and uh, Glenn and Ryan Roxy and Nita and Alice and everybody, uh, Chuck Garrick, fabulous. Just incredibly great band, probably the best band he's had since maybe the beginning band or maybe the band that had Dick Wagner and uh, Steve Hunter in there. But uh, Sir Alan, 
Nina Strauss, often referred to as a great female guitarist, and that is a term that has always somewhat bothered me. Why do we have to say female guitarist? Why can't we just say great guitarist? Because of the obvious. Um, great female guitarists are few and far between. Um, the first credible female rock band that I can recall was called Fanny and they could play um, also you've got to keep in mind that one of the greatest bass players of all time was somebody called Carol Kay and if you don't know who she is look her up and look at what she played on I do uh, She yeah. there's a video of her on YouTube giving Gene Simmons a bass lesson wow he finally got one Woohoo! Um, back to female guitar players b b before you ride to his defense. Um, Nancy from Seattle can play. She's good. Um, and rightly or wrongly, playing a guitar is overtly associated with what we might call a male consciousness. Um, it's not flowers in the hair. Um, Joni Mitchell, although I'll tell you, Joni Mitchell made a, a truly brilliant uh, rock and record called The Hissing of Summer Lawns. It's not that women cannot play music with conviction. It's rare that a woman can appeal to a male consciousness uh, creatively as well as a female consciousness. And those who can are special. Um, and yeah, but I mean, it's just silly, though. A guitar player who who is who has got that quality, um, you know. Even though you know, one of the things she's known for is being one of the maidens of Maiden. Um, I think she's got a uh, a band out there that plays Iron Maiden all the time, um, and they're a bunch of big girls. But um, yeah, but she she she's a just to me she's just a great guitarist i mean we we certainly don't run yeah. around saying that Jimi hendrix is a great you know african-american guitarist he's just a great guitarist and i think that when we talk about nita she's just a great guitarist and the whole female thing sounds almost dismissive and anyway whatever it's it's yeah. that's no, my own I little agree take. with you i agree with you but you asked me why people have that have that perception true true and i and i and that's the best answer i can give you as to why because really good female guitar players, electric guitar players, a few and far between. That I do agree with. And uh, her new album, of course, is called Controlled Chaos. And that is exactly the talk up we just had. Uh, it was Controlled Chaos between me and Alan. Um, anything else to add about uh, about Nita or Sumerian Records or, or anything? Or shall we just get over to the lovely Nita? Well, is it what there was? one aspect of uh, um, what's going on in her life there that I've been curious about um, and perhaps you know we'll get an answer from her was that uh, I, I know she did a GoFundMe project and raised a, a very substantial amount of money to record this record um, the reports I heard was that it was north of $150,000 and in this day and age, you can record very inexpensively um, 
for example, the Razor record uh, we did for just over $3,000. And my question would have been, if you could record your album that inexpensively and still have that amount of money left over, what is Sumerian Records going to do for you that you couldn't do for yourself? And what did you have to sign away to sign to a label? And these are interesting questions because when we talk about our next guest, I want to talk about a label a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So let us get over to uh, the one, the only, and again, apologies for the delay in getting this out, but here is Nita Strauss. We are speaking with uh, guitarist Nita Strauss. The new album is Controlled Chaos. Uh, Nita, always, always a pleasure to uh, to talk to you. Likewise, always a pleasure and great to see you the other day in Syracuse and great to speak to you now. Yeah, and that Syracuse show, by the way, of course, with Alice Cooper, just spectacular. I mean, his band, this might be the best Alice Cooper band since 1973. And I don't mean any disrespect to anybody, but it's just at such a level where everybody is keyed into what everybody else is doing. It's it's, it's almost magical. I mean, I know that sounds cliche, but it really, <laughs> it really is to that point where you just go, wow. <laughs> you know, well, you know, we've been doing we've been doing this tour. We've been Alice's, I think, his longest standing lineup for a while, you know, which is something to that we're extremely, extremely proud of. And it's almost like a symbiotic relationship. So, you know, we we just, you know, we, we kind of anticipate each other's moves and in, in a fun way. So I'm glad to see it comes across well in the audience. Yeah, it really does. So so let's talk about control chaos. We'll, we'll also talk a little bit about the paranormal evening at the Olympia in Paris, but uh, Controlled Chaos, talk to me about the process here. How far back did you go where you thought, okay, I want to make an album? Is this something that sort of came up in the last year? Is this something you've been thinking of for the last 10 years? Is this something that somebody said, hey, Nita, you're great. You should do it. Where, where does the genesis of this project come from? It's really all the way back to when I first started playing guitar, you know, and I know we've chatted about this a lot before. I won't go too far in depth into it, but really what it boiled down to is that all my heroes are instrumental guitar players, you know, Vi and Satriani and, you know, even the ones that are better known, like Marty Friedman for being in Megadeth, still have these incredible solo records. And I always had thought of it as this sort of almost unattainable thing like, oh, this is something that much better guitar players than me do, but it's not something I do. And, you know, once I got to this point in my career where I was, you know, established and I had been playing in bands and I'd been touring a long time, I thought, well, maybe it's not quite so unattainable. And uh, I wrote the initial song Pandemonium, and that was released through Steve Vai's label, Favorite Nations, on a compilation album, you know, alongside so many amazing female guitar players. And once I saw that I was capable of creating something that could, you know, comfortably sit on a compilation album with these incredible instrumentalists, I thought, I guess I can do it. I guess it's time. And that's where the whole genesis came from. When you're putting together an instrumental album and, and putting together a song, where, where does it start from? Because, you know, when you have a, a lyrical song, you, you have a lyric and then you try to fit some guitar parts around the melody and so on and so forth. What's sort of the first step in going, OK, well, this riff is going to be a song. Talk to me about how you do that, because I'm, I'm very, you know, uneducated in that process, especially for instrumental music. 
Well, really, for me, it's exactly the same as you would approach a song with lyrics. You know, you go, this is what the song is about. You know, I'm a very emotional musician, <laughs> a very emotional person in general, but I'm a very emotional musician. And uh, when I write a song, it's about something. It's it's not just, you know, notes that go well next to each other in sequence. It actually has a story and an emotion and a beginning, a middle and an end. So I really wrote this record hoping to convey, you know, these different stories and these different sides of my personality uh, in, in very much the same way you would as if you were writing a regular song, just without words. Is this something that you would like to continue doing, you know, a second, third and fourth album? Or was it the goal just to like, I'm going to get this one out. It's out of my system. Now I'll go back to being Alice's, uh, well, not guy, but Alice's girl. (laughs) You know what I mean? Alice's player. Uh, Is this the beginning of something or just the realization of a lifelong dream? And now, okay, it's out of my system. Onward, Um, upwards and onwards. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. You know, I, uh, I definitely think it's the beginning of something. I, you know, I, I got the bug now. I love to write music and I have always loved writing music. Um, but I, I do definitely still plan to, to make more albums after this one. But that being said, uh, I don't see any reason to stop, you know, to quit my day job in the meantime. No, and I don't see a reason to do that either. Um, moving forward, you're going to be doing a solo tour. You're going to be bringing these songs to the fans. Uh, is that particularly challenging, knowing that the focus is going to be just on you? You don't have, you know, Alice, and you don't have those 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 hits to stand behind. It's just going to be you and these songs. Uh, sort of a daunting task. And and what is the presentation going to be to fans? Well, geez, when you put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no. You know, to be honest with you, uh, I do uh, a lot of solo shows in that. You know, I, I do these guitar clinics, which are master classes. But essentially, I'm up there by myself playing my songs by myself. So I am quite used to being in front of a crowd alone uh, and also playing the national anthem and all these other things that I've done. Uh, I'm pretty comfortable being on stage. Uh, So really, it's more just, uh, I think the real pressure is that I want to play my songs really well. You know, I I feel that added pressure of of playing notes that I wrote that I feel like really strongly about. So uh, that's that's really where I'm feeling the pressure. But I'm practicing a lot. I got a guitar in my hands right now. And uh, I think it's going to be awesome. Yeah. And of course, the the national anthem for the for the wonderful L.A. Kiss. How can it be bad working for Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons indirectly, I guess? Um, well, 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 I've lost my train of thought. Oh, no. It was great, actually, working with them. I, I, I liked it. I didn't deal with them. Like you said, it was rather indirectly. But all my dealings with Gene and Paul were really lovely. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, in terms of establishing, establishing yourself as a solo artist, moving forward, you know, you look at Alice and you look at the Alice Cooper band. And not to be negative in any way, shape, or form, but we're probably down to the last 10 years, maybe 15. Mm-hmm. Uh, where do you see yourself sort of going from there? Because you you are obviously young. There's a lot of career left in front of you. Do you want to be that person who joins another band and another band and another band? Or do you want to be like a Steve Vai and, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, I'm Man, I'm, I'm, I'm tired today. Satriani? Uh, Satriani. Holy Christ. That was a uh, good guess. Yeah, thank you. Uh, <laughs> but is that how you, you see yourself moving forward? 
Um, I'm not sure. You know, I'm not putting too many things like set in stone. Uh, I, I think that Alice has plenty of career in front of him to keep me busy for a nice long time. And, you know, I'm 31. Maybe in five years when I'm 46, maybe I'll want to settle down. Or I'm sorry, in 15 years when I'm 46, yeah. like you said, mm-hmm. Alice has 10, 15 years left. You know, when I'm 46, maybe I'll want to settle down a little bit and <laughs> not uh, not be on the road 10 months out of the year. You know, maybe I will want to have a family at, at some point. But, uh, you know, I don't never, definitely never say never to any opportunities. Who knows? I could be playing with Alice next year. I could be playing with Pink next year. I could be playing my own solo stuff next year. Uh, I'm keeping myself open to all possibilities. Uh, which brings up an interesting thing. The, the musical genres, you're obviously known for doing hard rock. You've done the Iron Maidens. You've done Cooper. Uh, Control Chaos is definitely a hard rock in terms of, of style. Do you want to, as you move forward, start exploring a more pop side or a more classical side or whatever side? Or is this really, no, I'm the rock guitarist and that's what I want to do? Oh, no, I have done it, actually. I used to play in Jermaine Jackson's band, playing, you know, Jermaine Jackson and Jackson 5 songs. Uh, I've done it in the past and I would love to do it again. Oh, see, there you go. I missed that one in my uh, Mm. my wonderful research. Uh, Apparently, Paranormal Evening at the Olympia Paris. Uh, it is a great new live album by Alice Cooper. You and the band get to appear through the entire album, which is very nice for us fans. Uh, talk to me about that album that night and actually getting to have the entire touring band on an album, albeit just live. There you are. It's a dream. I mean, it is an absolute dream. And I, I'm pretty sure, actually... Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that this I'm the only one that has never actually been on an Alice Cooper record before. You know, of course, Ryan and Chuck have played on on so many classic Alice Cooper records. And uh, Glenn has played on, I think he played on the Vampires record and did some stuff on all these different things. And uh, Tommy, of course, did a lot of the guitaring on Welcome to My Nightmare. And so everybody else has had the experience of recording with uh with Alex except me so I think I'm actually the only one in the band that has never played on any of Alice's recordings so for me to open up an Alice Cooper record and get to see my name and my picture in there and hear my guitar playing you know along with Alice's iconic voice and his incredible timeless songs is just an absolute dream come true and the icing on the cake is that this album was actually recorded on my birthday so when you hear at the end of the album when Alice, you know, is introducing the band and wishes me a happy birthday, that's a really, really special moment kind of caught on tape forever. So that's really awesome. Oh, that's really great, actually. Um, talk to me about positioning yourself and branding yourself, because, you know, a lot of people have come through Alice Cooper's band and other bands, other classic bands, and they haven't stood out as much as you've stood out. Um Talk to me about how you've managed to develop that and and just becoming such a fan favorite. Well, I think that the fans like me because they know that I'm one of them. You know, I am, you know, first and foremost, a rock and metal fan. I love going to concerts. I love playing guitar. Uh, I I love this business. Of course, I don't love everything about it, but I love what I do. And uh, I think that's what 
first and foremost, you know, drives people to me. And I'm also, uh, I love, you know, I take social media pretty seriously. I'm on it myself. Uh, no one else runs my pages except me. The only person that even has access is Josh. And the only time he ever uses it is if he needs to block someone that I've already blocked from my personal account. Uh, but besides that, anytime you see someone commenting back or messaging back or interacting, it's always me personally. It's me directly. And keeping that personal and direct connection with people goes such a long way in this impersonal age that we live in. So it's uh, it's it's a full-time job, but it's one that I really, really enjoy. Oh, don't, don't I know it. I also run my own social media, and it, it's just non mm. It's 24 hours a day. I mean, it just it, you never end. Um, it's true. It's, it's funny because... You have you sort of like end up in this weird nebula where like you're always either rude to the people that you're with in person or you're rude to fans <laughs> because if you're in person with someone and you're on your phone all the time, it's it's really rude. But then also if you post something and you don't interact back and answer questions, then you're being rude to your fan base. So there's uh, it's hard to find a happy medium. Yeah, no, no, I, I get that. I was I was driving out to Dennis DeYoung the other day and I was sitting in the passenger seat typing and at doing the Twitter stuff and, and the driver kept talking to me and I kept going, excuse me, what? And I was getting lost and, and, and uh-huh. I, I don't mean to be rude, but anyway. Um, Josh, of course, is, and, and what's the proper term? Boyfriend, husband, I'm not, I'm not overly sure, but he is... He's my boyfriend. Boyfriend. He is yeah. playing drums on the album. Talk to me about that, some of the, some of the positive aspects of having... Uh, a family member, not a family member, but but a boyfriend. Close now. enough. Close <laughs> enough, right? And some of the some of the the challenges was, you know, it is your solo album, and and I mm-hmm. guess creative control is all yours. But he's coming in there drumming. Just talk to me about that, <laughs> right? I mean, talk to me about sort yeah. of that 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 vibe going on. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, so Josh is my boyfriend. He is my drummer, and he's also my manager. So he wears more hats in Mia Strauss world than I do, <laughs> which is really funny to say, but he's sort of like, you know, in, in the corporation that is Nita Strauss, he's sort of like a bigger part of it than I am myself. Um, but when it came down to purely the music part, uh, he was incredibly, incredibly respectful of my vision. Uh, Josh is a visionary himself and a very, very talented musician. And, uh, I would have been worried about it if he hadn't demonstrated so strongly that he just said, look, I want to deliver your vision as best as I can. And I want to execute it as best as I can. And that being said, you know, I, I like to program drums. So I gave him, you know, the basis for what I wanted to hear. And he added so much to it that made it so much better, like that elevated it to a, such a higher level you know, and that's that's the beauty of having a great musician to work with, someone that's not just like, oh, you know, uh, let me just play what you programmed on real drums like a machine, but actually say, OK, here's what you did. What do you think about doing this? And everything that he did just like brought it up to like the next level and the next level and the next level. And his influences are all over the place from, you know, tribal, like Brazilian Tom beats and all this stuff. So he was really throwing this this awesome vibe into it, like these sort of Sepultura-style tom beats and fills that just really, really brought it to the next level. That's great. Now, as you start thinking down the road of a second album, do you want to go back to that side of that, that, that situation working with him? 
or at some point you want to explore working with other musicians, just in the creative sense, not in a control sense or anything, but in, mm. hey, I'd love to have Steve Vai here. Hey, I'd love to work with whoever, you know, Kelly Keegi of Night Ranger on drums. Like, sorry, I just interviewed Night Ranger. But is that, <laughs> is, is that something that you would like to see yourself doing, is, is doing collaborative efforts and bringing in the Satrianis and the Vais and other people, Tommy Henriksen and, and all those people? And how do you sort of see it moving forward? I can definitely see myself working with other guests, definitely. But I don't think I could see myself working with another drummer because he just really gets what I want to get across so well. And it's kind of the same way I don't see myself working with another manager either. Like when you find somebody that you click with and they have your vision and your best interests at heart and are willing to stand by you in the trenches and see that through you know, that's the person that you're with for life, you know, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer. I'm getting ahead of myself here in a relationship. But, you know, that's uh, when you find somebody that really is is willing to be there with you and execute things with you when it's easy, when it's hard, when it's frustrating, when they're tired, when you're jet lagged and through all the thick and thin, you know, you stick with that person. Yeah. And in fact, I want to ask you about that because you know, we all know as fans the in front of the scene stuff going on with Alice Cooper and I'm 18 and this and that. We know the songs, we know that story, but what some of us sometimes miss is the back backstage stuff and having a loyal team and having a team behind you. Having Cheryl, having Shemp, having a Shep, I should say, not Shemp. That's mm-hmm. a that's a stooge. Uh, <laughs> but but what has what has Alice taught you in terms of? career and and having that because it's not just singing the songs and performing there's a whole backstory about how to run a business what have you learned from that regard in that regards from the cooper camp yeah there is so much and actually we're doing a docuseries uh with my label sumerian records we're putting out a, a little docuseries called road to chaos which is sort of documenting all the crazy stuff that goes in behind the scenes as much as we can get on a GoPro, you know, to uh, to show people a little bit of the other side of it, you know, how people don't think about all the stuff that goes into making a record besides, hey, you wrote, you know, 11 songs and then you put it up on iTunes and that's how you make a record, right? No, there's so much more. There's so many, you know, like there's press stuff and there's, there's photo shoots and there's interviews and there's, uh, you know, in person, you know, like I had to take like 40 minutes of Ubers to go to different radio stations the other day in, uh, in some random town. And, you know, you have to find time to fit in your regular life stuff, like going to the gym and answering emails that don't have to do with work. And, you know, like if you watch the first episode of road to chaos, that was the day that we put out my single, our most desperate hour. And you look at Josh's face in that, you know, when, whenever they show him in the clips, Josh had not been to sleep yet that night. He was literally up, all night, like not even that he went to bed at five in the morning and woke up at eight. He did not sleep the night of the release because there was a problem with the website and we had to get the website live and have the pre-orders go up. So he stayed up for like 36 hours getting it all ready to go because when it all comes down to it, we're a team of two doing, you know, 50 people's job. And just recently, you know, do we start to get the, the real manpower of a record label behind us? And Sumerian has been incredible with that. But for the most part, it's just been he and I against the world. And I think there's there's no better example of someone that has, you know, beaten the odds like that and persevered across 
than Alice and Shep and their loyalty to each other and the way that they've stuck together over the years is, is something I think everybody can learn from, not just us. In fact, I, I want to ask you about that because you did mention doing the interviews and doing all that. I think sometimes what fans don't see is some of the things both as a reporter that I have to go through and as, as an artist that you have to go through. I mean, I know I, I just had an interview with a major star from a major band and the publicist said, don't ask about the major band. And you go, huh. All right. <laughs> right. Uh, but for you and for the Ace Frehleys and the Alice Coopers and the Paul Stanleys, you get guys like me on the phone who ask you the same questions 10 times in the day. How do you sort of keep it interesting, keep it fresh? And, and how do you sort of keep that public face going? Because at some point you want to roll your eyes and go, oh, that question again? Oh, Iron Maidens again? Okay. Uh, <laughs> right? I mean, but honestly, we, we, we all sort of go through it. How, how do you sort of deal with that and, and keep it interesting and keep it sort of vivacious? Well, the, you know, actually, that is a, that's an Alice quote. Uh, when I saw somebody bring it up to him, uh, when was it? We were, we were having dinner as a band, Alice and Cheryl and, and all of us in the band. We were sitting down having dinner in Portland and someone came up to Alice uh, mid-meal, and they said, Mr. Cooper, I don't want to bother you. Uh, can I talk to you for a second? And Alice, of course, with a fork full of food in his hand, said, sure, what's up? And the person just, you know, essentially sat down at our table and started talking about the first time they heard Billion Dollar Babies when they were in the eighth grade and how their parents didn't want them to listen to it, and they had to listen to it quietly at night, and this whole long story. And Alice so graciously sat there with this fork full of food in his hand <laughs> and said, oh, wow, that's so cool. That's really awesome. Thank you so much. What did your parents say after that? And really engaged and, and spoke with the person. And after the conversation was over, I remember I complimented Alice. I said, you were so gracious. And he said, it's when they don't ask those questions that you have a problem. And that kind of stuck with me. I was like, yeah, I guess you're right. You know, I may have to repeat myself several times throughout the day. Like, you know, the last few days I've had four hours of press every day and a lot of them are the same questions. But you know what? It's when nobody wants to ask me any questions about my album that I have a problem. Yeah, when you start getting ignored. And it's funny, uh, I'll just, uh, I spoke to Alice in Syracuse and I was going to interview him on the Monday and this was on the Friday. And I said, Alice, you're my interview Monday. And he said, oh, great. I'm going to have to come up with a whole bunch of new lies. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> right? Classic. So, Classic Alice. Um, where where do you see yourself? Uh, sorry, no, we already did that. The um, the tour is, of course, going through the states. Are you going to be coming through Canada at some point? Twenty nineteen. Yeah, it's uh, it's all just dependent on the Alice schedule. Um, once I get our final dates that Alice needs us, because of course Alice is still going to be my number one priority. Uh, once we get the final dates that he needs us, we have plans for Canada, we have plans for Europe, we have plans for South America and Australia. It's just going to be a matter of when we can get there within the the allotted time. And uh, I'll finish with this today. The uh, Obviously, we've said it a bunch of times, it's an instrumental album. Are you at all interested in doing a vocal album, whether it's you singing or a bunch of guests that you come in? Is there an interest to write a lyrical album with vocalists and, and put out a vocal album? Um, if I did it, I would do it with my band, We Start Wars. You know, I have a great band and I have a great singer in that band. And if I did a, a regular album, I would probably just, you know, write it with them and make it that album. Because I think a solo record is, is about your solo vision and 
you know, I don't, I don't write lyrics. I don't really write vocal melodies and I'd rather just keep my solo stuff to be, you know, my vision and keep the band stuff to be the band's vision. That's interesting. So you don't write. So when you write songs, it's, it really just is the music. You don't have any sort of, you've never written a song even 10 years ago with, you know, any kind of cheesy lyric of any kind it's not that's it's not your gig oh i'm sure like you know when i was a kid probably <laughs> you know but it just was never my thing uh i have you know it's a weird comparison to draw but uh when i was growing up in los angeles people always said oh you're pretty you should do modeling and i always thought i i have no interest in modeling i don't want to do it there are people who are extremely pretty much more beautiful than me that really want to be models, let them be models. And I feel kind of the same way about singing. Like there's so many amazing singers and so many phenomenal vocalists that really want to be singers. So let them sing. I don't really have any interest in it. I just let me play the guitar parts when you sing. Well, that, that's, that's, that's interesting. Um, listen, always a pleasure to talk to you. And likewise, uh, hopefully we'll get to do this again. And uh, when I'm not as tired, <laughs> oh, <laughs> anytime man. at all. You've yeah, got our info. And I'd love to come out and, uh, and see, of course, another Cooper show. They're, they're always great. And uh, when you get up to, uh, to Canada, if there's anything you need, if you need help setting up an in-store, always happy to help. Uh, love doing that kind of stuff. That would be huge. Thank you so much. I will 100% take you up on that. Yes, there you go. Uh, thank you. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk. And a very, very big thank you to Nita Strauss. Always, always great to hear from Nita. And uh, we will finish today with John Deverell and Fred Purser. Now, of course, I am a big Tigers of Pantang fan. And for years, I had tried to get John on the phone, and he just politely and and nicely refused. He said that he had moved on in his life. He was doing theater and shows over in in the UK, and his rock life is just something that didn't interest him. So when he sat down with me and uh, Fred Purser to discuss their new album, Square One, he agreed to talk about Tigers of Pantang in the past. And so very, very exciting, and I had them on the line at the exact same time. Mr. Niven, or Sir Sir, Sir Allen, as I'm going to call you today. Um, Tigers of Pantang, big fan, not a fan, know them, don't know them. John Sykes, yes, no, what do you got? Uh, obviously very aware of John Sykes, and through John Sykes became aware of, of the Tigers, um, and then when I heard the name, I went, wait a minute, that's kind of interesting. And then I realized it was a Michael Moorcock reference. And when I talk about Michael Moorcock, when the conversation goes literary in the United States, nobody knows what I'm talking about. But if you're into sci-fi at all, Michael Moorcock wrote some of the best sci-fi ever. And the Tigers of Pantang are a reference to... Um, what he wrote but with Tigers of Pantang um, when I had a little bit of curiosity about them I had one of those yeah well what do you expect moments um, and it kind of ties into what you and I were talking about with um, Nita where Nita seems to be really well funded and my question to the girl would be come on honey 
why are you signing to a record label when you're well-funded? You can do what they can do yourself and not have to compromise and not have to sign any copyrights away and be totally self-empowered. Um, because Tigers of Pantang are one of those stories where you, you, you'd reference them. If you want to know what's shitty about record labels, look at what MCA did to Tigers of Pantang. Um, their creativity was completely stifled. Um, their A&R got up their asses because they wanted them to do more covers that they didn't think they could write their own material and refused to put out a record unless they did more cover songs. I mean, you know, just completely inane um, behavior from the record label, which, by the way, back in the early 80s, those of us living in L.A. used to call MCA the Musician Cemetery of America. Every negative that you can ever describe about a record label, that label personified. And in my own personal experience, uh, just like they buried uh, Tiger of Pantang uh, Masters, they buried a great album by an Australian band called The Angels. Uh, their album was released uh, in Australia as The Howling, and it's a superb record. But MCA decided to bury it with absolutely outrageous demands of uh, being remunerated after they decided they didn't know how to deal with it or what to do with it. Um, you want to know what's wrong with record labels? Just start researching MCA, Musician Cemetery of America. L let me ask you about that, because I have heard over the years of different interviews, uh, and, and you'll, you'll get a band and say, well, why didn't it work? And they say, well, my label MCA... Uh, were they just horrible with rock bands and hard rock bands and metal bands, or were they across the board from pop to country to whatever other genres? Were they just horrible all around? Because, I mean, they are, you know, they, they did survive. They did make money, so. Yeah, but they were part of a, part of a, 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 a massive um, organization. And, you know, lest we forget... Um, there was a period of time when Irving Azoff was running the label, uh, and at this period of time, he wanted to sign Great White, um, where one of the reasons why I could step back from that and say, sorry, Irving, you know, obviously I have great respect for what you've done with the Eagles, and I'm a massive Eagles fan, but I don't want to be involved with MCA. They had uh, people who were connected if you understand what I'm hinting at, and what mm -hmm. I'm hinting at is, is they're connected to the mob selling what used to be called cutouts. And back in the day, labels would actually print albums specifically designed for cutout. And the people who were actually cut out were the band and those who worked with the band because they got paid nothing and the label got paid for, for the disc. Um, it was an, an incredibly nefarious setup and organization. But when you're stealing from people and you're inept, you know, that I think is going to define the heart of your culture and what you're doing. Um, I cannot say enough negative about MCA. Okay, well, answer me this. Was it a bit of a laundry service? <laughs> Ah, you are so smart, my friend. Yes, of course it is. A beautiful, my beautiful laundrette. There you go. That's a, that's actually a movie. 
yeah, I would, you know, back in the days when I was working with Virgin, there were uh, two or three warehouses that I visited over on the East Coast and would go out onto the floor and look at the pallets of records that were quote-unquote cutouts and just be blown away at what they had to sell at a fraction um, for immediate payment and one-way sales. And it it was all... It was all in the wash, shall we say, and this will date it. One of, one of the, uh, the albums that I saw most afflicted was Out of the Blue by ELO, which was a huge hit at the time. Um, yeah, no, in the record industry, we've had our fair share of shady fuckers in it, and uh, you could find a whole bunch of them connected to an organization like MCA. Oh, I can imagine. Anyway, let us uh, let us face the day here with uh, John Deverell and Fred Purser. New album is Square One. It was released in December. The interview was done just before the release. And so this will end the cleaning of the closet. It sounds almost like an official holiday. It is the cleaning of the closet. But uh, without further ado, here is the one... The, actually, they're on, are they the one and the only, or are they the two and the only? Oh, I don't know. Here is John Deverell and Fred Purser. We are speaking with Fred Purser and John Deverell of the new band, Purser Deverell. The new album is Square One, out on December 14th through Mighty Music out of Denmark. Great place, by the way. Uh, John, Fred, pleasure to meet you. And pleasure to Likewise. speak to you. It's, it's great to talk to you, Mitch. Thank Likewise, you very much. Mitch. Yeah, and of course, cheers. Fan, cheers, uh, cheers. Of course, Ch- fans would of course know you from the good old days with the Tigers of Pantang, a, a great band. I mean, you look at some of those albums, especially the ones that you were both on, the Cage and stuff. Great stuff. But let's let's we'll we'll get to some of that after here. But let's start off with this new Purser Deverell Square One album. It is, of course, like I said, out in middle of December. I have had a chance to hear it. It is just fun stuff. Great music. Um. Tell me sort of the story. And in fact, John, let me let me start with you just so that the fans get to know whose voice is who. Right. OK, Mitch. <laughs> yeah, because otherwise um, two people yeah. are going to be talking and they're not going to know. So this is John Deverell, folks. Uh, John, t- talk to me about this project. And then Fred will get over to you just so folks can establish whose voice is who. But sure. uh, John, tell me about this project and, and it coming together, because it's been sort of this a long time in the making, right? Yeah, it's um, it's got quite a history, Mitch. Um, obviously, you know, my uh, I, I first met Fred um, when Fred joined the Tigers um, uh, very soon after the departure of our, our then existing guitarist John Sykes, um, and Fred came in at the last minute, and literally within a matter of days, we 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 toured France. <laughs> So Fred had about like a, a two days to learn the set, uh, which he did brilliantly. So, um, and um, then of course we went on to record an album together with the Tigers of Pantang called The Cage, which was our most successful album by a long chalk. You know, I mean, we, we it, it reached number nine in the British charts and sold more records than um, any of the other albums put together, really. So it was by far our most successful record. And then, um, yeah, you know, it all went a bit pear shaped. We had um, problems, um, business problems, not with in the band it was all purely business um some bad decisions were made and the tigers came to an end well that version of it anyway and out of that um it, you know myself and fred 
obviously love working together. I love Fred's music. He's a brilliant songwriter. I love singing his songs. And um, he'd written a number of songs for the, the next Tigers album, which, of course, wasn't to be. And some of these songs, you know, they were just great and I loved them. And we decided to record them regardless. And um, to cut a long story short, <laughs> because this is quite a long story, um, um, in the early 1990s, myself and Fred went into uh, Fred's recording studio. Um, uh, Fred can talk about that, obviously, and recorded um, uh, the songs that had been written for the next Tigers album and a batch of new songs. And um, they have become the Persa Deverell Band. So um, it's a totally new venture. Um, we want people to, to listen to it as such and not um, expect a sort of new Tigers of Pantang record because obviously um, there's an existing band uh, that Rob Weir, you know, the other guitarist in the band has formed. It's all getting a bit confusing, I know. Um, right. Uh, called, you know, and, and Rob is touring and, and recording as the Tigers of Pantang and we wish him the very, very best with that. But this is a new venture. It's the Persa Deverell Band, and um, uh, we hope people will um, enjoy the music as much as we have, because obviously it's been our best kept secret for the last you know, twenty odd years. So it's wonderful that it's finally getting out there. Well, and, and just quickly, uh, speaking of best kept secrets, your voice is one of the best kept secrets in rock because those those early Tigers albums and, and the way you delivered them vocally just incredibly stunning. Um, oh. Yeah, Mitch. Thank Mitch. Thank you so much. I so appreciate that. I really, really do. Um, that means a lot to me, obviously. And um, thank you so much for your support. You know, it, it means a lot. And um, uh, you know, the fact that, that people enjoy our music and enjoy my singing is a massive, massive. Um, uh, you know, it's a huge thing in my life i'm you know i'm thrilled to hear that thank you so much you're very welcome so fred let's get let's get your side of the story here um you of course joined as he said in a very sort of tumultuous kind of way the band had to go do this tour and john sykes does what john sykes does he sort of flakes out and leaves and so on and so forth um that's my interpretation of it by the way <laughs> yes <laughs> right uh so, talk to me about the album from your perspective, Square One and the Purser Deverell project. Well, I think John summed it very well um, in kind of how it came about. Uh, I loved working with John and love his voice and uh, uh, had already started on these songs um, in, in the uh, sort of wake of the demise of the Tigers. Uh, and uh, because I enjoyed it, uh, when I uh, established a, a commercial recording studio um, in the early 90s, late 80s, um, I, one of the actual things I, uh, that really attracted me was the idea I could probably work on some stuff that uh, I wanted to on an art artistic level. And uh, anyway, that, that opportunity arose, and uh, as John said, we... Uh, uh, recorded some new songs as well and uh, it, it kind of sort of went into abeyance for a long while because uh, the, it was just the studio was a lot busier and uh, you know John uh, started his acting career uh, and we effectively uh, <laughs> just chipped away at it I kept chipping away at it when I could and uh, finally decided uh, that I had to grasp the nettle and complete the the album. There was a, a one track in particular, which was a bit problematic. So I uh, readdressed it and found out what I f thought wasn't right about it. And uh, here we are. Um, 
in terms of moving forward, though, is this that we, we've got this project done, thank God, period, at, at the end of the sentence? Or is this sort of the comma and there's more to come later in terms of live shows, another Fred, uh, another Purser Deverell album? Where does this sort of situate us for 2019, 2020 and moving down the road? Well, I'd like to think it's uh, potentially ongoing. Um at the moment, I mean, it would be only worth touring it if it could be up to a standard, uh, and that would be depending on how how it was received, really, how, how uh, well it went. Um, but we are we are working on a, a an additional track, which was kind of like asked for by the uh, label as a bonus track. Uh, uh, but we sort of were doing it as a, a a nice sort of like current version of what what the the Persideverell thing is, and uh, you know, it, it's shaping up really nice. Oh, I can't wait to hear that. So just quickly here, because, John, you had mentioned that you had started working on this next Tigers album and it didn't it didn't materialize. But, you know, two years after the uh, two years after the cage, you did the wreckage and then there's burning in the um, uh, in the shade. Uh, why were these songs not considered for those projects? And, and why was Fred not involved in that project? Why did you sort of go, for the lack of a better word, solo on those two albums? Yeah. Um, again, you know, Mitch, I'm sure Fred will um, agree with this because we 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 tried very very hard, um, uh, you know, um, to to get the Tigers of Pantang back on track together. You know, I mean, it was um, um, a terrible. It was a terrible shame what actually happened to the band, the way it all kind of folded when we were at our highest point. Really, you know, we 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 ended up when we were our most successful which is kind of crazy really when you think about it um and um for a few years after that myself and fred really tried to get things moving and it felt as if it was kind of it had reached its natural end you know and um as fred said he was very very busy with his other projects his you know his recording studio and um, recording and working with other bands um i was kind of like in a limbo um unsure about what i wanted to do whether I wanted, you know, to kind of pursue my uh, my other kind of career, if you like, which is acting, which of course I eventually did, and um, then a set of circumstances arose, which um, kind of uh, enabled me to um, record the wreckage. Basically, we got involved with um, uh, well, John Sykes's stepdad. <laughs> it's all rather strange, but um, and. Um, because he had a studio uh, which was kind of which John had been recording in in Blackpool and um he was interested in, in in doing some stuff and he contacted me and said would you like to come in and do some stuff and I said yeah and I know that Fred was was busy doing other things so um I decided to go and do some stuff and call it the Tigers of Pantang but um I think you hit the nail on the head really uh, Mitch it was kind of more of a solo thing really um uh, you know, I mean, I, I see those two albums, The Wreckage and Burning in the Shade. I'm very, very proud of them. You know, I mean, it's very much part of you know my history as kind of more sort of um, my my sort of my sort of solo work, even though we called it the Tigers of Pantan. Um, uh, and um, but, and yeah, you know, that's basically how how that came about. And of course, um, at the end of um, uh, Burning in the Shade, um, I decided that, you know, the time was really right for me to pursue acting. And that's when I, I went to drama school um, for three years and, and trained as an actor. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I hope that kind of makes sense. <laughs> it, it, it does. And I'll follow up in a second, but I'm going to try to go, you know, between Fred and John here to... to uh, Fred, talk to me about leaving Penetration and and 
what was that decision like? Because it was it was a fun little punk band. They're they're still active. I mean, Pauline Murray and the band put out something called uh, Resolution in 2015. Um, mm-hmm. Why did you decide to step away from that and and sort of take your chance with Tigers of Pantang? Um, it didn't really happen like that much. Uh, it was a. Uh, uh, the band uh, was worked very hard by our management. Um, uh, they they were sort of you know very gung ho about us, but uh, it all got a bit a, a bit much. And on the back of a, a big American tour, uh, the US and uh, well uh, Toronto as well, um, we we uh, were kind of burnt out, and uh, the band just split up. Uh, Paul. Um, Pauline uh, wanted to do her own uh, Invisible Girls thing at that stage, uh, and the rest of the band members really hadn't got to, you know, the desire to carry on. So uh, I left and uh, was developing a solo project, uh, which was uh, getting championed by uh, one of the guys in the management company. And uh, it was at, at that point that... Um, that basically the, the, the Tigers called me to, to help them out uh, with their predicament. Right, and it was such a predicament. Um, John, let me ask you, you have, like I said, and I, and I mean it sincerely, one of the greatest voices in rock. You decided to go to acting. Why didn't you want to stick around the scene? Because I'm sure eventually a band would have needed a singer and you could have been the new singer of whatever band, whether it's, you know, an L.A. Guns out of the, you know, uh, L.A. metal scene. Why sort of say, I'm going to step away from this? Because there was a certain... Uh, talent and there's a need and there's a very small talent pool out there for people to to choose from you could have been working the rock thing up until today non-stop well thank you so much for that mitch i do appreciate that um but basically i kind of got a bit well to be totally honest disillusioned with the whole thing um um i felt there was an element of i felt a bit kind of burnt out if you like because we toured continuously to promote um the wreckage and, and burning in the shade and um it, i just felt very disillusioned i just felt i wasn't getting anywhere you know um all the business problems that the tigers had had i we then started to have other business problems connected to the wreckage and burning in the sh- shade i just got sick of constant um you know kind of um you know, sort of problems with 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 business people you know it just became um i sort of lost lost track or, or, or lost the feeling of 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 um creative sort of enjoyment you know it just, I just the spark kind of went out for me a bit and um i thought well right okay i've given this my best shot it's now time to pursue what i kind of always wanted to pursue as well don't get me wrong i i love you know singing and i love singing rock and i love being in the music business but um I wanted to to sort of um, act as well. And during all this time, I've never stopped singing. I've done an awful lot of sort of musical theatre. I've, you know, um, um, you know, it's, it's singing has always been part of what I do, and it always will be. And um, it's not as if I sort of stopped singing. So in in other in other ways, I was being very finding a lot of satisfaction artistically from 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 uh, you know doing you know other things. Um, you know, acting and, and singing in musicals, and um, uh, you know, I was singing with um, some um, a group of, of performers called West Enders. You know, people that worked in the West End and had this 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 group, and we used to go. You know, we, we did shows around the country, and I, I sang with them. And um, uh, you know, so it, it's always been very much part of what I do. Um, 
so yeah, I, I hope that answers the question, Mitch. You know, I was just feeling I needed to. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah you just feel that you needed a a new life path, if we can say it that way. Um, yeah, very much because for, for me, it's always been about the creativity. I mean, um, uh, you know, what always has motivated I, myself and Fred is is create to be creative to create music. You know, that's what it's all about but unfortunately we're you know it is a music business and um you know you can get sort of you know some bad decisions can lead to more bad decisions and before you know it you're in litigation with a record company and then you've got a management that feel they've got part of you and it's it's just all becomes you know um a bit of a you know anything but creative <laughs> right it becomes yeah. you know so it's you know, yeah we've had our unfortunately you know we've had our fair share of all that you know um uh, obviously we've, we've we've come through it now to this point and it's a new a new fresh start and a new fresh beginning and um you know uh myself and fred have you know we have control over what we're doing you know um so it's um hopefully we won't have the same kind of problems <laughs> yeah and a lot of perspective to go with it um fred talk to me about moving mm. from a punk band like penetration to a more sort of hard rock metal band like Tigers of Pantang was it was it an easy transition in terms of guitar playing and in terms of songwriting or did you sort of have to relearn your craft as you made the switch over from one band to the other yeah, that's a good question uh, it wasn't quite as uh, as drastic as it might appear because the uh, one of the criticisms that I had when I was in penetration from some quarters was that they regarded my playing as uh, a bit rock a bit too rock for the the punk genre but the band band was actually a new wave band and uh, we were sort of progressing the new wave thing and um it became very much more sort of a guitar-led thing and uh, uh out of that i mean uh, the it, I, I was still a rock guitarist and uh you know i, mean, I, I do lots of things but rock guitar is one of the things i love and um when it came to actually sort of joining the, the tigers they were kind of on the sort of i hope they don't mind me saying this but possibly on the punkier uh, end of the spectrum uh, uh, and they you know they were developing sort of their own sort of progression and uh, it, it, it kind of like was logical for me to go into that band environment and enjoy it because uh, all of the energy of live shows in the punk arena um, uh, were very similar to how the Tigers viewed it you know it was a very exciting live show and a lot of energy there and um, also, you know, I think all the players, they really enjoyed themselves on stage, which uh, made the whole thing, you know, a bit of a joy, really. A great joy. So, um, listen, uh, Spellbound comes out, great album, people revere it. It's, it's top 100 in a lot of lists. Same with Crazy Nights, The Cage, people loved it. It sold a bunch. But the band splintered up. So l let me throw it at both of you here, and we'll start with John. Where did it go wrong? I mean, you had the songs, you had the vocalist, you had the guitar player. I mean, John Sykes was great. Then Fred came in and was great. But it blew up. Yeah. It... <laughs> Mitch, I, you know, I mean, myself and Fred have talked about this, you know, and um, it is quite incredible. It, it's, it, it, it really, I mean, it, you know, it, it's very, very hard to sort of um, kind of explain really because it, was over a period of time you know it didn't just suddenly end um i think it started with um our management at the time decided that they didn't want to continue anymore because they were having 
um, a lot of problems with our record company, MCA. Um, it's fair to say, I know this has been well documented elsewhere, but I think it's, it's fair to say that we didn't have the commitment from MCA that we should have had. Um, when you think that we were signed at the same time as Iron Maiden and Def Leppard, and both Maiden and Def Leppard had incredible commitment from their record companies. You know, um, they had much, much bigger advances. They had much more money to spend. They were able to, um, you know, you know, really operate, you know, um, on a different level. And we were, we were, you know, I, I, you know, I felt we were at a disadvantage all the time because the record company just wasn't committing to us 100%. I think we had about 85% commitment and, um, Obviously, that's that's what led to our decision to leave MCA. And as soon as we made that decision, oh my God, that's when um, you know it all started to go pear shaped. Because of course, they weren't prepared to just see us walk away. And um, we had a lot of interest from CBS at the time. They were very very keen to sign us, but it would have meant buying us out of the MCA contract. And you know, it all just all became a can of worms. And before we knew it. We couldn't do anything. We were, you know, we were completely and utterly sort of in a straitjacket. And, um, you know, it went from bad to worse. And eventually we got involved with some other management and had bad advice from them. And we had bad advice from lawyers. We just had, you know, it all just spiraled, you know, Mitch. It's um, very, very sad to look back on it. Well, it does because musically, if you look at Spellbound, Crazy Nights and, and The Cage, you're, you're you're musically in the same pocket as was Def Leppard was doing on Pyromania and and, and um, their albums and, and and Iron Maiden and here it falls apart. Now Fred, talk to me about coming into the band. First of all, you have to replace John Sykes, which is no easy task. Uh, but Spellbound, like I said, people loved Crazy Nights. People loved. What was it like for you? And, and what did you see walking into the band? Did you walk in and go? Oh, this is a mess. Or did you go? Okay, this is a great little, great little bunch of guys. Like, how did you sort of come in as the outsider and sort of overview the situation? Sure. Well, yeah, it was, a, it was an odd one because uh, my uh, expectations were I was just helping them out, uh, and uh, obviously to, to come in and uh, and you know play play John's stuff was really you know a challenge. But uh, you know I'm always up for a challenge, and uh, uh, it, it was it so happened that there was such a great bunch, uh, and uh, we all really got on really well. Uh, uh, I think that um, that was a, a, a bit of a surprise to me how uh, you know how, how uh, good the atmosphere was in the band. And uh, when I actually sort of when they approached me to join permanently, I, mean, I was just delighted to. And as I understood it, really that they, they were looking for somebody who could uh, write songs and, uh, and maybe add a little bit of uh, you know some, uh, arrangement skills and whatever. And uh, you know I was just more than happy to really. So I kind of put the, any solo uh, projects kind of uh, to one side and uh, you know ended this environment and uh, really enjoyed it but at the time I thought the the it seemed MCA were kind of um, you know full on but they weren't really as we as we kind of sort of found out and uh, little by little there were certain people injecting ideas which on the face of it uh, seemed like kind of a, a good a good idea for one thing, but they kind of became wanted to uh, sort of, you know, choose the direction of the band, and uh, they they were definitely sort of seemed to make the their commitment dependent on 
us touring the line and covering various songs, which we didn't really uh, feel comfortable with. And it wasn't working uh, when the last suggestion uh, was presented to us, uh, another Motown song, which kind of we categorically said, well, this, this we can't make this work. This wasn't really happening. And, um, you know, from going from a brilliant situation, uh, what seemed like a brilliant situation, to what from the outside world's perspective was probably a brilliant situation, to actually a, a sort of like impasse with the label. And then, as John very, very uh, uh, correctly described, uh, it sort of like all sort of tumbled apart and uh, uh, each sort of step uh, became more and more sort of bizarre. And, uh, uh, and as John said, it just became a can of worms. It really did. Uh, I'll ask this to Fred first and then John. Uh, very simply, do you miss playing those songs? Because they were great songs. Obviously, they must be great memories for you because you had, you know, all these festivals and, and, and fans love them and, and, and they're good songs. Uh, do you miss playing the songs, Fred? Yeah, I do. I, I mean, I miss playing live. Uh, I, I love playing live uh, with both bands. And uh, but yes, I, I enjoy playing the songs. They were they were uh, uh, really fun to play. And uh, you know, I also miss the whole sort of like Tigers Live thing because you know the, there was always an energy. Always, you know, you used to have a cheeky glance across at Rob and likewise. And it, it was just uh, you know, it was an exciting thing to do. And I don't think anything else quite lives up to uh, playing. Uh, exciting music in front of a you know a big audience. Yeah, I certainly would love to see if you do the the Purser Deverell tour have a few of these songs pulled out. But you know, whatever. Uh, John, how about you? Do you do you miss singing these songs? Because for, first of all, the range <laughs> that's a range of a twenty one year old. I don't know if we can handle it now. Who knows? But <laughs> right, I don't know if you can, but Thanks, but you probably can. But uh, do you miss those songs? I mean, you, you know, you look at Lonely at the Top, Rendezvous, and uh, Love Potion. I mean, fun stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with Fred. You know, is what Fred said. You know, um, there was a real energy about the Tigers live. It was incredible. We had some amazing uh, tours, and um, one highlight was you know the Reading Festival of '82. You know, we were the the last band to appear on stage B. You know, the first band to use lights, and then Maiden topped. Uh, you know, I Maiden topped it on stage A. Um, incredible. You know. Um, I, you know, I I love singing live, you know, but of course I've never stopped singing live because I've been, as I said, working in in the theatre. Um, and, um, and yeah, as Fred said, you know, I mean, um, we both like to think that this is the beginning of something and, um, you know, live work, absolutely, if the if the time is right, if the situation's right, if there's a demand for us to play live, you know, I mean, um, and as Fred mentioned, we, we went in, back into the studio a few months ago and recorded a totally new song, which kind of links today with the past. It's like the bridge between the two. And, um, um, you know, I loved the song, loved singing it, you know, um, loved what Fred is, do is doing with it. You know, I mean, it's very exciting that because um, it is, it is, you know, the, Persideverell, sort of 2018, you know. Right, as we so, move into um, 19. It, it, it's a great thing. Uh, but go ahead, continue. Yeah, you know, Mitch. So, I mean, I, I loved, I, I, I loved playing live. It was, it was everything. You know, getting in front of your, your audience. You know, um, you know the, the enthusiasm coming back at you, the energy coming back. You know, that just, it was just incredible. And um, very grateful to all the people that you know supported us then and, and hopefully will support us in the future 
Well, listen, I, I'm one of them, and here I am doing the interview, so I'm still supporting. So fans are still excited. Um, John, I'll throw the, these last couple of at you here just real quick. Uh, Phil Campbell, of course. Uh, yeah. Motorhead yeah, fame yeah. I, and Phil Campbell on the Bastard Sons. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me a little bit about Phil. Are you still in contact with him? And, and just a quick word well, on, on Persian Risk. Yeah, well, it's very interesting, Mitch. You know, because um, I I haven't seen Phil for a number of years. We we're we're, we're both from this very very small town in South Wales. I mean, um, it's hardly the rock and roll capital of the year of the world. But um, it was so funny because I'd known Phil for a long long time. Before, we you know we basically grew up together. You know, I mean, um, and um, uh, we formed Persian Risk, as you know, and which which was a serious band you know i think we could have possibly gone on and done something if we'd stayed together but of course i got the gig with the tigers of pantang and in literally a matter of months later phil got the gig with motorhead so um uh you know and he went on to have a great career obviously and do brilliant things with with them and um but but phil is a great guitarist you know he's a really he's the real deal you know a great guitarist and um a great guy and um i'd love to see him again actually it's been a number of years but there was a we've got a, a, a mutual friend in common a guy called nick Hughes, that was the bass player in Persian Risk, and uh, you know we, we've sort of hooked up on social media. We're going to try and try and do something, but um, I'd, I'd, it'd be great to see him again, you know, because it was strange that we both came out of this tiny little town and both went on to actually do something. Yeah, it really is. And and hey, who knows? Maybe uh, maybe on the next Purser Devril, have him do a guest spot. That would be that'd be kind of cool. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know why yeah. not? Why not? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Can you imagine Fred and Phil exchanging licks on a song? I, I think that would be delightful. Uh, but, and here I, I can imagine it. I, I, I agree, Mitch. I think it would be very exciting. You know, I mean, um, Fred, you know, I've got to say that I love Fred's guitar playing, and I mean, Fred is a great guitarist, and um, and so is Phil. You know, so I'm sure the two of them would be <laughs> amazing together. You know. Oh, absolutely. And uh, as we're we get to half an hour here, we're running out of time for for, for the show. But I'll just quickly ask. Uh, John Sykes, incredible guitarist, uh, went on and did the stuff with Thin Lizzy and, of course, Whitesnake. What did he bring? Because, I mean, he sort of showed up at the Tigers of Pantang at the same time as you, but what did he bring to the band? Because there, there certainly was skill and... and all, just, just talk to me about John. Well, you, you know, Mitch, he was incredible, I've got to say. I mean, I'll, I'll never, ever forget the first time I actually saw John Sykes. <laughs> I walked in for my audition because John joined the band um, about six months before I did. And um, I walked into the rehearsal room where my audition was going to take place. And John seemed to kind of like glow. <laughs> Honestly, he was like... There was something very special about him, you know, and this still is. I'm sure I haven't seen John again for many, many years, but he was, I think, I think it's fair to say that, you know, that he was the best guitarist to come out of the new wave of British heavy metal. You know, I mean, he had an extraordinary talent. Um, he was very ambitious. I always felt that John was going to take off one day. You know, it wasn't any surprise to any of us when John literally in the night up and left, you know, um, I mean, it was it was kind of crazy, and, and and thank God Fred was at hand to kind of step in because we were in real trouble because we had a tour booked and we had to fulfil our obligations. And at one point, it looked as if we were going to have to do it with, with just one guitarist, with just Rob, you know. Um, and um, and John, you know, and John has gone on to do incredible things. You know, he's an amazing guitarist, a great great musician, and um, you know, again, I'd, I'd love to sort of see John eventually, perhaps in the future sometime. I haven't seen him for literally many 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 years um but uh, working with him was extraordinary he, he's like a whirlwind you know i mean um uh, um 
uh, like a whirlwind. That's what you know. I mean, oh, incredible! What can I say? Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, I have to give John his his credit and his due. You know, I mean, um, you know, those spellbound and crazy nights were certainly. You know, he had a massive, massive. Um, input into those albums you know a massive input and um i do wish john well whatever he's doing wherever he is you know um um yeah he was uh, you know uh, you know an incredible guitarist absolutely and uh fred and john i'll put this to you both just uh, we'll end on this spellbound is considered to be one of the greatest albums especially of the new wave of british heavy metal um, movement for the lack of a better word and just a hard rock album John, you were part of it, of course, so I'd like your perspective mm-hmm. on, on that album, what do you think and how it stood up. And then, Fred, you came in, you had to learn these songs. How do you, so let's, in fact, let me start with Fred. How, how did you look at this album? Because it, it is revered. I mean, here we are in 2018, and people still put it on top 100 lists, and people just love that album. What was it like for you to come in, learn those songs, play those songs? Um, how do you look at the album, Fred? <laughs> I, I really like the album. I think it's uh, it, it deserves its atten- uh, attention, and uh, it was it was it was really good to play. Uh, obviously, uh, really hard to play some of the solos, uh, but uh, it was yeah, it was really enjoyable. And uh, I think I think it's uh, it stood the test of time uh, in many ways because uh, it was kind of a very honest album. I think very straightforward uh, rock, you know, uh, in a good way. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And the 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 artwork. Those sort of minimalistic is is just perfect. It just stands out. That it's I mean it's a great T-shirt basically. Um, John, you were involved with it. How do you look back on it? Do you think that's something that you did, you know, thirty-five years ago, whatever it is, would still be revered by hard rock fans, and people would still be saying, "Oh, it's one of the greatest rock albums." Or are you sort of surprised by that? Um, absolutely delighted by it, Mitch. And I have to say, I love Spellbound. I love it. Um, it was a labour of love. Um, it was my f- the first record I ever recorded. It was the first record John Sykes ever recorded. There was an incredible creative spark on that record. Um, the songs just flew out of the guitars. I, I mean, I-, I-, I love it. You know, I think it's just truthful, very honest. It's got all the things I love about hard rock. Um, you know, I mean, it's a-, it's a great record and I'm very, very proud of it. Yeah, and, and, and as you should be. Uh, Purser Deverell, Square One, of course, out December 14th. Uh, thank you to both of you. It, it is great to hear that you're still out there, still active. Uh, I need to come out and see a play with you, John, because that, that, that would be absolutely <laughs> delightful. And uh, I'd love that, Mitch. Yeah, I'd love that, that too. That would be just great. And it's just nice to have two people that were part of this very important scene in the early 80s uh, back out there, still active and making new music, and uh, I look forward to the next new album as well, quite frankly. So thank you. Thank you, Mitch. Thank you, Mitch. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Yes, and let's hopefully do this again soon, especially when you announce a tour and album number two. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Thanks, Mitch. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers now. Bye-bye. That's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you, Fred. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Mitch. Hey, this is Frank Hannon, Tesla's lead guitarist. Be sure to visit my website, frankhannon.com, to check out my latest solo album. And keep on listening to Westwood One's Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Crank it up. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.